We look at two groups as we're in Acts chapter 19. Two groups. One group realized that God and His Son Jesus Christ was the answer to all of life. One realized that God is the great I Am. And one, sadly, unfortunately, did not. So today we're looking at blinded by sight. Blinded by sight in Acts chapter 19. What a kind of a strange title, but you'll see very quickly. Let me show you a picture. I know many of us love these pictures. This one's a little bit easier. I didn't know how the resolution would be on the screen, so I gave you an easy one. Do you guys see what we see? Of course, you see the kind of nice pastoral uh, landscape there, but you also see a face, right? You see a face. I hope everybody sees it, right? You see these pictures. I love these types of pictures where you find the hidden things in the picture. Or some of those you've seen before might be the, the type where it just looks like kind of a jumbled mess of a kind of a jumbled pattern and you stare at it, if you kind of stare at it cross-eyed, like an image will jump out of the screen, right? So, but, but this, this picture here is one of those hidden pictures that, that we just love to see and love to, uh, love to look at, love to find the hidden pictures. But we see things that are hidden by sight. Oftentimes when we uh, look at things in life and we look especially at the gospel, one of the impediments to someone accepting Christ as their Savior giving their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, taking the gospel into themselves as they cannot get past the things that are right in front of their face. And we see this today in Acts chapter 19. We see one of these groups who they're so blinded by the things of life that they see that they cannot see beyond to a greater existence. In fact, what Jesus Christ called the abundant life in John chapter 10. They can't see that because all they can see is what's right in front of them. For them, especially, it was their livelihood. They couldn't get past what was their livelihood to see the greater things, what lied beyond a life in Jesus Christ. So, Acts chapter 19, we see here the setting that Paul, of course, had been <clears throat> going throughout all the land again. He had been having great missionary journeys throughout all of this land, all of the known world at the time, and he comes to Ephesus. And he begins, as it is his custom, to, to go into Ephesus, go to the synagogues of the Jews, and also to the meeting places, the marketplaces of the Gentiles, and preach the good news of the gospel. And so we see here that great miracles were being done. God was really paving the way for the good news of the gospel. He was going before Paul, going before his missionary cohorts, and really paving the way through great works and great miracles. And so we see here, starting in verse 11, now, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out from them. So you see this picture is incredible. Uh, God is working so mightily in the midst of the known world at this time, as the gospel is proliferating throughout the known world at the time. It is, he is working so mightily, and especially through Paul, that, that even... Paul will send a handkerchief, or Paul will send a, a piece of his, his, his garments, a piece of his cloak to this remote village or this remote village, and just the presence of it uh, is healing power. Now, this isn't some sort of magic, or this isn't some sort of uh, idolizing of Paul, that we make Paul some sort of deity. It was simply that Paul was God's messenger, and God was working so mightily through Paul in his midst that even these things that were sent out, paved the way, healed people so that the news of this would spread far and wide, opening the door to what uh, truly was important, 
the true healing of life, which was the healing, the gospel power of Jesus Christ. And so these great miracles were worked, unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, aprons were brought from his body to heal the sick, and diseases left them. Now here's what happened. Some of these itinerant Jewish exorcists, charlatans, said, man, that's really incredible. So you see in verse 13, itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And also there were seven, especially of the, uh, were, were guilty of this, were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this also. So there were charlatans in the day, because obviously there was great demonic activity, activity of darkness in the day. And uh, in the midst of this great demonic dark activity, there were these priests that would go, on, go along, these charlatans, these Jewish exorcists that would come along and say that they could heal people of these demons. Now they were, of course, they were imposters. They weren't uh, preaching the true gospel, nor did they have real power. But suddenly they see the power of this one Paul who's preaching in the name of Jesus. And they say to themselves, now we're pulling off a pretty good racket on folks. We have a pretty good hustle happening here. But imagine if we could have this true power. Imagine if we could call upon this name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And if we had true power, think of how business would boom at this point. What they failed to realize is Jesus wasn't just a magic word. Jesus wasn't just a, a name who you could call upon frivolously and call upon his name and have his power. You know, you can't just steal cable from God, if it were. You understand, you've heard of people stealing cable. Of course, now we have all sorts of different ways of getting uh, television, television stations other than uh, the local channels. We have Dish or things that run underground in different lines. But you always heard about people used to steal cable, right? They'd splice a cable line off of their neighbor's house. And so they didn't want to put any of the effort, any of the payment, of course, do any of the hard work, pay for it. But they wanted to get all the benefits. In the same way, that's exactly what these Jewish exorcists wanted. They didn't want to submit themselves and give their lives to the Lord Jesus. They didn't want to hear this message. They just wanted the power. Because they had a pretty good racket going as it was as complete imposters. And think about if we can just have this sort of power. And so an evil spirit. <clears throat> and so these, they, these seven sons of Sceva who were the leading ones did this very thing. So they tried to cast out and, and, and exercise these spirits. And they would go in the name of the Lord Jesus. And an evil spirit one time when they came along said this to them in, in verse 15. And an evil spirit answered and said... Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. They have absolutely no power. They had absolutely no power. You see, it was a great time of darkness in the land. Obviously, hope had dawned. The Messiah had come. But evil was doing their work to, to thwart the gospel, to thwart the work of Jesus Christ, to, to thwart the, the eternal and, and long-standing work of redemption that had come now to its, its crux, its apex, through the person of Jesus Christ. They're working overtime. Folks, don't ever deny the fact don't ever come to the place in life where you begin to think that the work of the enemy is just simply fairy tale or fantasy. 
The work of the enemy we mentioned the last couple of weeks. The enemy would love you to just think that. That's fairy tale stuff. There's, this, there's no devil. There's no Satan. There's no demons. There's no forces of the enemy that are thwarting the work of God. But if we were to take anything of Scripture... We can't just piecemeal scripture. We can't just take this little piece that we believe, that we feel is plausible. We can't take that little piece that we feel is plausible. But if we're going to take the word of God as exactly what it is, it's the word of God, not containing the words of God, we must take it for all that it is. Take it for its entirety. And we see here that the Bible speaks very clearly, not only in this passage, but throughout it, that there is an enemy seeking to thwart the work of God, the eternal work of redemption, of redeeming mankind. And especially we see this work that began to really pick up and increase and swell because the Messiah had come. The Messiah had come. But in the same way, in our day and age, there's great darkness in our world. The world system in which we live, that world system perfectly designed, society, uh, sinful society, perfectly designed, if you will, by the enemy to trap us and to push the buttons of our own sin nature that live within and so we live in a time of darkness as well. We live also in a time where there are many people that have absolute hopelessness. Those that we see around us, those that we live with, we work with, we know, we know very closely, many of them live in absolute darkness and hopelessness. They're seeking after all sorts of things to find that joy, that fulfillment, that longing in life as we spoke about last week. Longing in life. And the enemy is more than happy to point them in that direction and that direction, and that direction, and that direction is long as they're not pointing towards the truth of Jesus Christ. So we see here that Paul was going and God was going behind him in great powers as he spoke in the name of Jesus. These Jewish exorcists said, we want some of that power so we can increase our business, we can increase our standing. They tried to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and a demon said, I don't know you. And he, in the body and in which he dwelt, leapt upon them, overpowered them. And great work was done in their midst. And so, as God worked mightily, as God was working in an incredible way, as his messengers, as his ambassadors of that good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ went out through all the land, we see here, particularly in Ephesus, in this city, there was two stark reactions to this gospel there were two stark reactions to the message that Paul brought of Jesus Christ that hope and forgiveness is found only in one person. It's found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every man, woman, and child is to turn from their old way of life and to turn their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And only in him, only in him do we find forgiveness. Only in him do we have the hope of heaven. Only in him do we have true life. It is the same gospel message that he preached then that we see 20 centuries later that still rings true. It is the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as he went into this town of Ephesus, as God was clearing the path through these miraculous works, and even through this work of, of these Jewish exorcists trying to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and to, to take this power unto themselves, and it absolutely failing miserably, the people took notice the people realized that Paul and this message that he was bringing to them wasn't just a message that they could blow off. They inherently realized that this came with change. Now, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at these two groups. We're going to look at these two groups today. 
And I'm going to look at the second group first. We're actually going to start with our first point today, looking at verse 23 and following. Then we're going to come back to the earlier portion of the chapter and see what should be our response, any person's response, to the good news of the gospel. So you remember this incredible feat happens here where they call upon the name of Jesus the, to, to, try to, to try to further their business, these Jewish exorcists do. They see no results. In fact, they are overpowered by this demon, demonically possessed man. So we jump down here. The people know there's something legitimate about it. So we jump down here in verse 23, and we see the first answer to this question. When you look to the gospel, what do you see? When you look to the gospel, what do you see? It's the same question. It's the same basic question that, that, that must be asked, whether it's 2016 or whether it was the first century. When you look to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what do you see? What did they see? The first thing that we're going to see, again, starting in verse 23, is your losses. When you look to the gospel, what do you see? This first group, all they could see was their losses. Their losses. Verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Remember the way was the name for the early Christian church, followers of Jesus Christ. They, they were known as the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have prosperity by this trade. He's saying, guys, realize, we've got a problem here. This Paul who's coming is saying that this Jesus, whom he speaks, is the only true God, and he is not worshipped in things made with hands nor temples, but he is God, and he is God alone. Guys, do you realize what this means for our trade? He was a silversmith. He could look no further than just the, the hand in front of his face, his particular circumstances, and he said, I cannot give this up. This is my livelihood. How sad and how tragic it was that if he would have only known, if he had only seen what God was and seen him for who he was and Jesus for who he was, he would be able to echo the same words that we see here throughout the book of Psalms and Proverbs. Speaking of silver, Psalms 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of, of the earth, purified seven times. Psalms 119, 72, the law of your mouth, as the psalmist is saying to God, the law of your mouth is better to me than 10,000 coins of gold or silver. Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold? And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. But sadly, this man could not see beyond his own livelihood. Now for you that are here today that may not know Christ as your Savior, your circumstances might not be the same. It may not be your source of livelihood that may get in the way. For them, that's what it was. But for many of you, there may be some roadblock in your life. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Maybe it's been many times. Maybe you've been attending this church for many, many years, and you yet know that I'm not a believer in Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I've never come to that place where I've given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever the roadblock is in your life, maybe it has been a roadblock there for years. 
Maybe it's just control of your life. Maybe you just feel like, you know what, I just, I know there is difficulty in my life. I know when I'm quiet, when I sit by myself, I know there's an emptiness in life, but there's just, I just want control. I just got to hold on to it. I just cannot trust. Whatever it may be, it may manifest itself in different ways. For the silversmith and, and, and those of his cohort, it was looking at their livelihood. And they couldn't look beyond their livelihood to something far better. But for you, it may be something different. But can you look, will you look today beyond the circumstances of your life to something far better? What he didn't realize is this man was building his house as Jesus said on the sand. So he, he again, in verse 25, he called to them and he said, Men, this is our prosperity. Moreover, verse 26, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that there are no gods which are made with hands. So not only in this trade of ours is in danger, but, but, but of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana might be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Many of you know that great temple of Diana there in Ephesus was one of the, the seven ancient wonders of the world. A magnificent place, as he said. Absolutely right. But again, they couldn't look past their just circumstances in their life. They couldn't look past their livelihood. They couldn't look past what they knew. They couldn't look past just life in general to see that there is something far greater. This message that Paul brought. And in so doing, they were building their house upon the sand. They were building their house upon things that did not last. And in so doing, they also said, we will continue to worship Diana. Not only are we making these idols unto them, but this, this Diana, her magnificence will fall into question. Her beauty will be destroyed. You see, folks, we talked about it before. We as human beings, we are made to worship. It's not a matter of do we worship or do we not. God has created us to focus our passions and our attentions on something. And he has made us, as we were created in his image, our focus and our worship and our passion is to be focused on God. But if we don't, we will focus our attention, our passion, our worship on something. As we talked about last week, that's where we fall to the place of what Ezekiel 14 says, idols of the heart. Anything that we might put before God, anything that captures our attention, anything that captures our joy, anything in which we say, I am putting my attention and my focus and my passion into this because I believe that through this, I'll have what I'm missing. I will get what I'm looking for. And folks, Christians, believers in Jesus, followers in Jesus, this is something that we still fight with and we must war against every day of our lives. You see, we as Christians, we have those who have given our lives to Jesus. If you've done that, if you've come to that place in your life where you've turned from your old way of life, turned your life over to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and as he says in his own words, you've been born again, we know that we have ultimately made that decision. We have made that planting that flag decision where we say, I am no longer worshiping anything else, but I give my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. In practicality, we must, though, fight that each and every day to say, my attention is given to this. 
My passion is given to this. My excitement is given to this. We must always keep God number one in life. And guess what? All of those other things that we worry ourselves with, all of those other things, they have a magnificent way, a wonderful way of falling into order. When we get the order right, when God is number one in life each and every day, it is amazing how everything else just kind of falls into its right place. But when we get that out of order, when our focus is on the things around us that we see, when our focus is on this, this particular thing in life, this particular job, maybe this particular worry in life, maybe getting this particular position or this thing or that thing, when we get those things out of order, maybe it's this hobby or that hobby, whatever it may be, when we get these things out of order and say, I'm finding my satisfaction in this, everything else begins to crumble and fall apart and those things that we sought to hold on to so tightly those relationships that we thought we would find joy and peace in those things begin also to crumble it says here in verse 28 now and when they heard this when the crowd heard this man demetrius must have been some sort of uh some sort of influencer so they said when they heard this they were full of wrath and they cried out saying great is diana of the ephesians as so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. So as you continue throughout, and I'm going to summarize the rest of the passage here as, before we come back. As you look throughout the rest of this, they seize these two traveling companions of Paul. Paul wants to go in. The other disciples said, Paul, don't do it. Please don't do it. Even some of the rulers of Asia, he was, had some powerful friends. They said, Paul, don't do it. Let it simmer down. So they put up another man before them, and they realized he was a Jew, and so they, they shouted him down, and they you know, said, great is the goddess Diana, great is the goddess Diana. Then the city clerk comes to try, which would be the ancient equivalent of our modern-day mayor, tries to come in and settle the crowd down. He finally does by saying, guys, just, just, just listen. If it, if it is nothing, if it doesn't matter, if it's untruthful, it will blow over. You see, even the mayor himself had an opportunity to look truthfully into the message of the gospel and let it peer deeply within his own heart. But even at that moment, all he could think about was settling down the crowd. All he could think about were the Romans at the time, the Romans who were the rulers of the known world who said, we will let these indigenous leaders lead their people as long as they keep the peace. If they don't keep the peace... We're coming in, and we're taking over. And that's all he could think about. Settling down the crowd so that the Romans didn't come in, and he wasn't unseated from his seat of power. Even he had an opportunity to look deeply at what was creating such a stir. There must be something to this. But all he could think about was saving his own skin, quieting down the crowd. But let's look now. Let's look now at the right reaction to this gospel message. We see it starting in verse 17. When you look at the gospel, what do you see? Do you see your losses? Or do you see, as these people starting in verse 17 saw, do you see your gains? Your gains. Verse 17. As you remember, the crowd was gathered. Great power with Paul. Jewish exorcists came in. Try to call in the name of Jesus. They were beaten up. 
UFC style by a demon-possessed man, people are like, man, this is something incredible is happening. Something is happening. So this became known both to Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, verse 17. And fear fell on them all. Remember, this is this reverent awe. No doubt there was some sort of fear that we use commonly as well, but there was also this reverent awe of saying, something great is happening in our midst. Something is happening. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Magnified. I don't think that it is any accident that the Holy Spirit working here through Luke, the writer of Acts, uses these two words on two different occasions. They were calling out Demetrius and his other silversmith felt incumbent upon themselves that they had to defend the magnificence, defend the beauty of Diana in the face of this challenger. But with no defense of his own, the people realized the magnificence of Jesus. They magnified his name. And many who had believed, verse 18, came confessing and telling their deeds. Telling their deeds. Also many of those, verse 19, who practiced magic, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it was totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You see, they came magnifying the name of Jesus. They realized in clarity that all of this, this made absolute sense. When this group of people looked at the gospel, the confrontation of Jesus Christ, they didn't look at their losses. What are we losing? They realized their gains. And in so doing, not only did they magnify the name of Jesus, but they dropped the facade of life. They came and they confessed their sin. They came and said, this is what is wrong in my life. I am ready to drop this facade. I am ready to drop it. This is what is wrong in my life. They came confessing and telling their deeds. And also many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, burned them up in the sight of all. They counted them up, and the value of them was 50,000 pieces of silver. In that day, the common wage, the common daily wage of a laborer was one piece of silver. You can see what sort of proliferation this, uh, this sort of pr- practice of magic had in, in, that, in that city. You can see the sort of divination, how it had taken over, that people were looking, they were hoping, they were groping at anything that would give them the answers to life, and there was great booming business around it of giving them supposed answers that led nowhere, led nowhere. But these people, not looking at their losses, but looking at their gains, realized they came to the point of no return. You see, I almost named this sermon, this message, the point of no return, because that point is so powerful in this section. They came to a point of no return. It was funny, as I was just walking around this morning, I actually had a different illustration for this. It's funny how these illustrations just hit you, and you're you're surprised they didn't hit you earlier. But I was walking around down um, in, in, in the south end of the building meeting with a couple of the Bible study classes this morning and we were talking about my father-in-law who many of you know I use farming illustrations quite often because of him he's actually retired this is his last uh, harvest this was his last harvest and so they had this month earlier this month he had an auction in which he auctioned off all of his equipment at that point there is no turning back at that point there is no turning back there's no going back he realized that 
He realized that. He realized there is, at this point, it is dedication to this decision that he's made. You see, when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it isn't just as these Jewish exorcists thought, well, I can kind of take a little piece of that. That seems advantageous to my life. That seems like something that could be helpful to my life. So I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, as they thought, so that I can get something that I want. Far too often, I think, in our culture, we have this sort of idea of just general spirituality, where we may come to church on a Sunday morning, or we may get on Facebook, or we may watch a program just to kind of get some sort of spiritual pick-me-up without really coming to the place of which Jesus laid out carefully that I'm not only your Savior, but I am your Lord. I'm the one that has control of your life. Now, when we think about that, we're prideful people, and we say that, have control of my life why would i let anyone why would i give control of anyone of my life why would i give control of my life to any single person out there well here's the thing we think about giving control of our life to another person we're thinking about giving control of our life to another flawed person just like ourselves but when the bible speaks clearly of giving our lives to the lord jesus christ and he takes control of our life we are giving our lives to the person who is perfect and pure and righteous and who always, always wants what's best for us, even when it is difficult. You see, there's difficult things in our life that God brings and God moves in our path because he knows ultimately, even though we can't see beyond that first step in front of us, he knows it is best for us. And so when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to come to that point of no return. Here's the wonderful thing about those that don't know Christ as their Savior. Those who the Bible calls lost. I think at times they realize this often more than we as believers in Jesus Christ realize it. You see, the way that we are to live... The life we are to live with the Lord Jesus Christ when we are a Christian is daily surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Daily surrendering, daily saying, Lord, today my life is yours. Use it as you will. I give my life as an act of worship for your glory and your honor, and I trust that you will take care of everything else because you're a wonderful and magnificent God. You see, believers or unbelievers, I think, intuitively realize even better than some believers some days that they realize if I give my life to the Lord Jesus, this means things must change. And that's absolutely right. Now, here's the wonderful thing. When you give your life to the Lord Jesus, when he becomes Lord of your life, change things, things change for the better. Wonderfully, wonderfully better. Does it mean that life will be full of problems, full of issues, full of pain? Absolutely not. But it means that we are anchored to a true hope. A true hope. And so as we end today, let us kind of look within. And as we leave today, prayerfully would you look within? And would you say, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, would you say, what is it that I must continue to burn? We see that these believers, these that come to faith in Christ, they put their money where their mouth was, and they burned things of the old. What is it in your life, even as a believer in Jesus, that is standing in the way? What has become an idol that is standing in the way of the Lord Jesus that you must proverbially burn in your life to serve him better? Trust me. 
if you do, if you say afresh and anew, I surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will not leave you disappointed. Whatever it is that you're trying to keep a tight grip on and you're trying to, to, to arrange just perfectly and get and handle just perfectly in your life, if you, if you put Jesus number one and turn that over to him, he will take care of that. And to the unbeliever, and to the unbeliever, the person who has not been born again, the person who has not come to the place where they've given their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it to? What is it standing in the way of that decision to give your life to Jesus? Is it that you know deep down, even though your life feels there, there's an emptiness there? Even though deep down you know there is, you need to be forgiven for something? You still cannot let go of your life. You just say, this is something I must hold on to. Would you trust him today? Would you just let go and give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Would you let it go? You see, when we ask the question again, that we asked at the beginning of the sermon, when you look at the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, what do you see? Do you just look at your losses? Or can you look beyond those things to the wonderful, wonderful gains by giving your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. And Lord, we come to you now. And we ask that for those that are here today, we know that there are some in our midst that need to give their life to Jesus. Lord, may they look beyond the things that they might lose. May they realize it is even wonderful to lose those things. May they look beyond those and may they look to, to your son Jesus and see all the gains, the gains of, a, of an abundant life, the gains of adoption into your family, the gains of a certainty of heaven, the gains of forgiveness. Lord God, may they look beyond that and look to you. In his name we pray. Amen. We come now to this time of invitation.